a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. before we get started, I have a quick favor to ask. I spend a lot of time creating this podcast to help women who've shared the same or similar challenges to me and to help the show keep growing. Can you please click the follow button on your podcast player? It would really mean a lot to me. Thank you so much. I can't wait to get into this uh, conversation today. I have the most incredible guest on the show for you today, Dr. Lauren McDonald, and a little bit of a controversial topic. We're going to talk about magic mushrooms. Well, actually, no, we're going to talk about psychedelic therapy. But loads of you have asked me to speak about mushrooms on the podcast. So I've gone on, done my research. I remembered Lauren. Lauren and I met a few years ago at a festival and Lauren just came out of really intense treatment for her stage four cancer. And we were really aligned, which is why I remember our conversation so vividly. Lauren was there with her gorgeous mum. And we talked about our love for yoga. We talked about how we both really believe that food and nutrition played an integral part in healing and recovery and meditation. But Lauren Den, and that was quite a few years ago now, already spoke about functional mushrooms really passionately. And that's why I thought I'd reach out to Lauren. But I was stunned to hear how Lauren's story unfolded. Today's episode on the use of magic mushrooms but really psychedelic therapy. We're going to talk about psilocybin. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about it from two angles. Lauren will talk about her own personal experience using psilocybin. And she's also going to talk about her professional experience. And that is why I think this episode is so incredibly important and valid, and we could have not wished for a better guest. Lauren is now also a clinical trial doctor at the Imperial Centre for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London. So everything she's going to talk about from her professional experience is going to be researched and evidence-based. But how amazing we're also going to be hearing about her own profound life-changing experience of using psychedelic medicine on a psychedelic retreat. She had to go to the Netherlands for that. And it's incredible how a doctor, right? Doctors are usually so rational and yeah, their thinking is so evidence-based, how someone can really, really expand their thinking to lengths and depths like Lauren has is incredible. We're very, very lucky to have her on the podcast today. And without further ado, I'm going to just so, so, so hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Lauren, I'm super excited to sit here with you today. Welcome to the podcast. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. And it's been a while. I haven't caught up with you for, I think it's years now, isn't it? It's been a long time and your journey has really evolved over all those years. When we first met at a summer festival, remember, <laughs> at Truefields Summer Festival and you were there with your lovely mum and your story was so inspiring to me then and you've gone on to do amazing things. You're on the podcast today because I'm doing a little bit of research on mushrooms, functional mushrooms. There is lots of information out there and I have no idea whether it'd be appropriate for me someone who's had cancer and is in menopause and also the women in my community. And I know you know a lot about mushrooms and all these sort of things, but to, to get people into your story a little bit, tell me what's happened to you and why today we would be talking about healing modalities that very few people even know about. Mm, yeah, yeah, where to start? It's, it has been a huge journey. And yeah, I guess for anyone who, who hasn't heard my story, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer in, well, it was seven years ago, actually. I was thinking this yesterday. I've literally, yeah, been, been in remission now for, for coming up to seven years. But I was first diagnosed with stage four seven years ago, and that really changed my life, as it does everyone's when, when you get a diagnosis like that. And I was working as a conventional NHS doctor at the time and holistic modalities were, were kind of on my radar in terms of, you know, yoga and meditation, but nothing really more than that. Just, you know, general lifestyle well, wellness, I would call it. And it was through my own diagnosis and um, the fact that I was told at one point that there was actually no further treatment for me um, because the particular cancer I had didn't respond to chemotherapy or radiotherapy so I was told you've probably got about a year left um so that was my prognosis and that really spurred me on to just support my own physical emotional spiritual health and along the way I came to like you said mushrooms and not only functional mush mushrooms like reishi and chaga and cordyceps and lion's mane um, and that was really to support my immune system because um, I was hoping to get onto an immunotherapy trial, but also later down the line to psychedelics, so psilocybin, magic mushrooms. And that was much more to really, um, yeah, like heal from, from the trauma of going through the cancer diagnosis and to start to really face the existential anxiety and distress that had been kind of bubbling under the surface for quite some time. And I think I hadn't really looked at it. So, yeah, I had no, no kind of huge desire to jump into the mushroom world. And yet here I am very much in it. And today you're a clinical trial doctor at Imperial College London. And I really want to know a little bit about the work you and your colleagues do there with psychedelic uh, mushrooms and other therapies that are very, very new to most of us. And perhaps people haven't even heard about the incredible work you do there. But going back a little bit, you said your biggest lesson during your own experience with illness was the understanding that you can be declared cured without being healed. And just as you experience healing without being cured, we all want the big cure as someone who's had a cancer diagnosis. But how do you differentiate that healing isn't quite the same as curing and the other way around? Yeah, it's... it's such an important distinction because I was very aware on my own journey that 
even when I had active cancer, that I was able to do things, activities, change my life, bring in new practices and habits that were were kind of shifting me internally in terms of like my emotional state, um, making me feel more connected to myself, to nature, to the, the wider world, the cosmos. And in doing so, um, not only kind of regulating my nervous system, but just making me feel much more whole. And that's really kind of what I see healing to, to be about. It's that return to wholeness. It's integrating all those parts, the, the kind of bits that you're maybe hiding from the world, actually really allowing them to be fully part of your being, um, not shying away from the, the difficult, more challenging parts of life and, and self. And at the same time, I was aware that even though I eventually became, um, was in remission, I, I managed to go through immunotherapy and had a really brilliant response, which was, you know, all, all I could have asked for, really. At the same time, I was left feeling a shell of my former self. I hadn't had any um, therapy. I hadn't really addressed the kind of emotional toll going through those years of surgeries and various treatments had had on me. And I was feeling really disconnected and pretty numb and exhausted. And in that way, I think, yes, I could have, maybe people were looking at me saying, oh, she's no evidence of disease. She's potentially cured from cancer but I did not feel healed. I did not feel whole. I didn't feel, um, yeah, like I was kind of having the quality of life that I had had before cancer and that I knew was potentially possible. So it was also, that became a big journey on the other side of my cancer diagnosis to really reclaim all of all of the parts of myself that I'd lost along the way and, and yeah, reconnect to myself. And how did you start to connect those dots? Because you feel like a shell of yourself and so many people do. And many of our listeners would have perhaps finished their active treatment. They're then finding themselves in menopause, which brings a whole a host of other symptoms, uh, physical and mental. And it just goes on and on and on. And when we actually think I should be done by now, <laughs> my active treatment is a year ago or two years ago, and I'm still feeling X, Y and Z. It can feel really deflating when we don't actually know where to start connecting the dots. I know from talking to you before, you started to look after your gut health. And that years ago, when we spoke about that, that was something that I don't think was very much on my radar. I know you, we spoke about exercise and diet. You then looked at functional medicine, uh, functional mushrooms. What were those and why were you interested in those functional mushrooms in your early times of exploration? And, and it's interesting because this was all back in kind of 2013, 2014, um, where when I think a lot of people thought I was slightly strange, <laughs> kind of looking into all of these various practices and tools, because obviously now, you know, you go into various shops and um, health food shops and you see functional medicine uh, mushrooms on the, on the shelves. But back then it really wasn't talked about. And it was actually quite hard for me to get hold of these various mushrooms. I was having to import them. And yeah, that, it's interesting just to look and think, wow, in the last, you know, eight years or so, nine years, what's, what's changed? But yeah, I, I really started focusing on, like you said, gut health and um, medicinal functional mushrooms and any kind of mind-body practices that would just help calm my nervous system more than anything else because I knew about the mind-body connection. I really wanted to get my body in the best possible 
shape my immune system in the best possible shape to fight cancer cells if I was able to get on the immunotherapy drug. And yeah, through through that, I found yoga. I ended up actually going off and training as a yoga teacher. So I did have all these wonderful practices and tools. Um, and at the same time, I didn't, I just, there was something missing, essentially, even on the other side of my cancer diagnosis. And yes, like you said, the, the mushrooms were on my radar, very much so. But it, I'd never heard of magic mushrooms in the context of healing. I'd heard about them, you know, people going out and taking them recreationally. I totally missed that boat when I was younger. I hadn't ever taken psychedelics. You know, it was something that wasn't really um, on my radar at all. And it was a very random, you know, beautiful, in hindsight, very beautiful, uh, serendipitous find of a TED Talk by a professor at Johns Hopkins University in the States, a lovely man called um, Roland Griffiths, who actually now himself has stage four cancer. But at the time he was talking about a study that he'd just done, and this was about 2016, and um, the study had been looking at psilocybin therapy, so using therapy alongside psilocybin mushrooms to help people who had cancer, who had been really struggling with existential anxiety, depression, um, just everything that really I was still experiencing, even though I'd gone through the, the, you know, come out the other side and was supposedly cured and was meant to be feeling wonderful, but was really still struggling. And yeah, I found that TED talk, which I found fascinating because I'd never heard of this. And that just took me, um, yeah, just on a huge journey to learn about psilocybin mushrooms and how they'd been used historically, you know, in cultures all around the world, world forever. It's not new. This is a new therapy. Actually, you know, ceremonies have been have been held by indigenous peoples for spiritual growth, for healing, for just reconnecting with themselves and, and the cosmos. And I was so intrigued by everything I was reading that I booked onto a retreat, a psilocybin truffle mushroom retreat in the Netherlands. And that was in 2018. And, and yeah, it goes without saying that retreat was, was life-changing for me. It had such a huge impact on, on how I was feeling and really helped me to heal from going through, you know, the years of cancer treatment. And it just made me realize I really want to help other people to get access to this, um, either in a ceremonial retreat setting or, or in the clinical setting. So yeah, I'm on a very long winding journey, essentially. So let me, let me imagine this for a moment. You're a medical doctor, you've had cancer in your 20s. You feel obviously really grateful that the immunotherapy treatments that you didn't even know whether it would be available to you in your particular cancer. And I know you had to wait for that. I remember you telling me, you were sitting watching your cancer grow until the treatment finally was able, um, was being made yeah. available for so you. It was about four months I was waiting, yeah. Yeah, and then you go through all of this, you feel a certain way and you book a flight to the Netherlands to explore part of your brain and self that aren't, can we not access these maybe in our consciousness, the way you and I talk now, right? This is a big jump, right? We're not talking about using Reiki mushrooms to improve our gut health or maybe our clarity focus, try and remove um, brain fog. You are trying to access different parts of yourself through ceremonial 
mushroom taking. Now, mm. you must have been so scared. I mean, <laughs> what was going through your head booking onto that retreat, not knowing what to expect? Or were you really feeling you already had done your research and you thought, no, no, there is real hope. This is promising. This is exciting. What went through your head? I think having watched the TED Talk, the fact it was a scientist and a researcher that was had given that TED Talk. And um, if you haven't checked him out, Roland Griffiths is just the most wonderful, wonderful man. It's really worth watching his TED Talk on psilocybin. But yeah, after watching that and then I'd done a lot of research, I just actually couldn't believe that this wasn't freely available. Like, you know, in terms of very minimal side effects, incredibly safe. If anything, I, I just was saddened that I hadn't had access to this a few years prior. Because actually, I, I wish I could have gone to this retreat had I known about it, maybe when I was first diagnosed. Because I lived with such fear, you know, waking up at four o'clock in the morning every day, terrified I was going to die. And my quality of life had actually been really poor for quite a few years. So I think if anything, it was just a huge relief that I'd found something that could potentially offer me, um, yeah, a way to process the trauma and a way to make, make sense of what had just happened to me. You know, I was in my early 30s at that point, had just gone through a huge stage four diagnosis, all the surgeries, all the treatment. And um, yeah, I just, I just, I think I was excited. I was, I was really hopeful and excited. And of course, there was some trepidation because I'd never taken psychedelics before. And now what happened and what happens when you take psychedelics and what is the difference? You can't do that in the UK, I'm assuming. Talk us through what happened and then what's changed since all those years, because I know things have moved on as well. So, yeah, just to be really clear, I'm talking about psilocybin in this context. So there's a range of psychedelics, um, things like LSD, most most kind of one of the most common ones, but psilocybin. And then you've got other drugs that are sometimes classed as psychedelics like MDMA but aren't true kind of classic psychedelics so yeah I can only really talk for for psilocybin because that's my own personal experience in the Netherlands and like you said it's illegal in this country so I had to actually go on a flight I had to book to go over to the Netherlands and everybody has a different experience I think that's one thing to say that you know you can hear about my experience or other people's experience on these retreats or in, in the clinical trials. And at the end of the day, we are all individuals with our own, yeah, backgrounds and psyche and defenses. So it, it really, you can't predict in a way what's going to happen. And um, I went with an intention. My intention was to kind of explore what had just happened to me, what I'd been through to actually start to kind of clear out any trauma that my body was still holding on to. I felt like I'd been in survival mode for so many years and that I just wanted to start shifting, shifting back into, yeah, more of a, a content, peaceful state, really. So that was, yeah, my intention that I went with. And the other thing about psychedelics is you you can never really predict where you're going to go. You can hold on to this intention and actually there's a real wisdom in the psychedelic mushrooms and a wisdom in your own uh, yeah, inner healing intelligence. So you, you get taken where you need to go. And my entire journey um, with the mushrooms, which lasts about five hours or so once you're, you're in the ceremony, ended up being around 
um, meeting or conversing with people who I'd met on the chemotherapy unit over the years who had since died, but getting to, um, yeah, meet them in their energetic form. I was also kind of blasted off into another realm and was very much in an energetic form. And, and we were, we were meeting and, and speaking and they were reassuring me that they were, they were well, you know, they weren't still in their physical form. They weren't still alive on, on this earth and yet they were still very much always here with us and um, that I could just be be reassured that even though my physical body will will inevitably die that we continue that our essence continues and actually it's really beautiful and it was just such a loving comforting exchange to to be with them all and and so much more happened on that psychedelic journey as well but it was really all about love and joy and bliss and there was a lot of emotional catharsis as well I did a lot of crying just for everything I'd been through and left the retreat just feeling so much lighter um I don't think I realized just how much um fear I was still holding around the cancer coming back because I'd gone through so many years of you know being told I had no evidence of disease and then three months later on my CT scan, the cancer would be back. So I think I, I must have still had that deep, deep fear of it coming back and fear of fear of death and dying. And I left, yeah, just with a, the, the fear was replaced with the curiosity. You know, we will, there's a mystery. We'll never know what happens when we die. And it, it's not that I, I, I knew on an intellectual level, but it was more like an, a felt, a felt sense, like a, a deep knowing that, there is a there is there is something else. There's an essence that continues, um, and to not be scared really, which for me was was really really life changing, to have that experience and to just feel so loved by all my friends and family and and to know that I am love. Um, I don't think you can really ever get to to that place through just traditional talk therapy. Are you off your face? I mean, can we <laughs> can we imagine <laughs> this for anyone who's never really thought about this kind of therapy are you mm -hmm. you know when we say in the old-fashioned ways I was off my trolley were you off your trolley mm -hmm. <laughs> is it that kind of experience yeah. well also just to say obviously I'm talking about my experience at the retreat setting in the Netherlands which tends to be you know maybe 14 or 16 participants um, really beautiful venues and um, in the ceremony we're all lying on individual mattresses it's a really beautiful space beautiful altar in the middle held really well it's not just a one-day experience it's very much a four or five day experience of really helping you settle and feel prepared and ready and then help you integrate it afterwards um, versus the the clinical setting, which is obviously where I work now at Imperial, which tends to be much more therapeutic. You've got two therapy guides and one participant in in a smaller room. And I would say in in neither neither setting would I describe anyone being off their face. Okay, <laughs> obviously it's dose it's dose dependent, um, and it tends to be the to really have a, a full psychedelic experience you do need a higher dose sometimes it's called like a hero's dose so this is very different to say a microdose which you might have heard of microdosing which is when people take uh, very small doses of psychedelics like basically sub perceptual you can't really tell you've taken anything and um, this you very much can 
tell you've taken something. And it, it tends to come on quite quickly with psilocybin, maybe within 20 minutes or so. And you you kind of are aware still, you tend to still be aware of your surroundings and um, able to, you know, ask if you need to go to the bathroom or if you need a glass of water. But it's, it is a big effect. So most people choose to put on the eye shades and the headphones in the clinical setting or just the eye shades if you're in the retreat and lie down, tuck yourself in. You know, the facilitators or the therapists will, will be there to kind of be on hand as well if you need anything. And it's very much an inward journey. So with your eyes closed, you, you really get to explore your, your inner world and ask those questions or come back to your intention and um, that's really kind of where the healing happens. So rather than it being outwardly and chatty, it tends to be a bit more inward. And can anything go wrong? What, what happens if you meet stories, people, scenarios that you are not strong enough to meet? Or, does that, or are you meeting what you're strong enough to process? And I think there's a, for a lot of people, this idea of a bad trip is, is something that they'll be familiar with. It's certainly a reason probably why I didn't take psychedelics when I was younger is I just had this um, idea of them being really bad, really dangerous. There was the, the kind of media campaign back in the day about if you take psychedelics, you lose your mind, you go crazy. Um, the fact is they're actually incredibly safe. That's not to say that they're not without risks. Of course, certain people shouldn't take psychedelics. So if you have a a background, um, a history of schizophrenia, psychosis, bipolar. Um, and at the same time, generally, even the most challenging experiences can be healing and transformative if the, the psychedelic has been taken in the, the kind of what's called the right setting. So rather than being at a party or a festival where it's really loud and overwhelming, if you're in a, you know, a safe setting, if you're in a lovely room, if you've got facilitators or therapists there, um, and also if your kind of mindset's um, in a good place. So, you, you know, you've, you've consciously made the decision to take the psychedelic, you've taken your time, you're really prepared, prepared in all the ways. That's all really important as well. So that, that, that tends to not completely you know, there will always be some risk of having a challenging experience, but definitely um, if you put the preparation in, it tends to facilitate a more positive so-called mystical experience. Um, and having said that, yeah, of course, challenging experiences do happen. And that can really range from the more physical symptoms. So, you know, with psilocybin, nausea can sometimes come up, headaches. And then that slight feeling of you know, especially when the, the psilocybin is first in your system, and if you've never taken psilocybin before, it can feel quite overwhelming. And um, people can start to feel like, oof, what's going on? It can feel a bit scary. That's where just coming back to your breath is really helpful, like using the breathing as an anchor, reminding yourself that you're safe, maybe holding on to the hands of the facilitators or guides. And um, it tends to be a bit like a a flight, you know, and you kind of take off. Sometimes you get a bit of turbulence as you're going through the clouds. And that can last for, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. That that can also be maybe when your your defenses are kicking in. So, you know, you don't always want to let go of control. It can be quite hard to surrender. But actually, when you, you kind of blast through the clouds, you get to a really serene, beautiful place quite often. 
And um, yeah, so that so it, it can be challenging, definitely. And at the same time, for a lot of people, uh, it can be really insightful and really healing. And for some people, they'll have that so-called mystical experience as well. What really resonated with me is when he said you met the people that you met on your chemo wards, because even going back to pre my cancer diagnosis, my our twin babies were born far too early. So we had them on the intensive ward as very tiny premature babies. And they were there for about eight weeks. And even now, and my twins are 13 and they're well, and they're such a blessing and such a gift for us. Even now, when I look back at that time, meeting the other parents who had babies in intensive care was my most traumatic experience and is still my most traumatic sort of thought and challenge now when I look back at that time. It wasn't so much just our experience, it was everyone else's experience. And when I then look back, when I went through active treatment and my chemotherapy, the people that were with me every Wednesday when I rocked up for my chemo cycles, they are really, really strong experiences, aren't they, that you make and sometimes you don't want to make them, but you do because pe- they're there and the people's stories are there and you feel for people so strongly. And so I do think we have healing to do on so many different levels, but just our own experience. It is so interlinked with the experience yeah. of others. Yeah, definitely. And and you're so right. It is those very intense intimate exchanges that you have with people who are in the same boat as you because friends and family you know will empathize and be compassionate and and be supportive but they're not living the that experience so it's sometimes only only other cancer patients can really understand where you're at and what you're going through and for me because I was only you know late 20s early 30s there were actually very few uh, young people on the chemo ward um so I made very close relationships, close friendships with with a few other younger people. And when they died, it was really hard. You know, I was there for, for a few years going to this unit every two or three weeks for the infusions. And inevitably, not all of us survive. And um, I think tied up with that, there's probably some survivor guilt as well. You know, why is it that I survived and that person didn't? So to, to meet them in that, cosmic realm as their as their energetic essence and to really kind of yeah just be with each other again and and to be able to converse and um yeah to send each other love was was really special yeah and it's interesting that you bring up guilt because so many women i speak to in our menopause and cancer community have so many feelings of guilt in various forms and Um, for various reasons, but many women say that struggling with the menopause, perhaps even years after the initial diagnosis, makes them feel that they shouldn't really complain. They can't really get their sort of all power together to really go and go full steam and ask, you know, knock on doors at their medical team to ask for more help, more treatment, more solutions, because they feel guilty because they've survived in the first place. And it almost feel, they feel they shouldn't complain, they shouldn't moan, they, sh- they should just get on, they should be able to just get on with it. And so we feel guilty, we've survived. And here we are still struggling and shouldn't be doing much better than we're doing. And so all those feelings of guilt, they're there, aren't they? Wrapped into our journeys of healing and getting better. And guilt is, I guess, never, I mean, maybe it can be, but it's often less helpful, a feeling and an emotion. Hmm. 
And, and that's another reason why psychedelic work, psychedelic therapy is so helpful because so often there's emotions, whether it's guilt or anger, you know, and another emotion that many of us feel when anything in life happens to us, you know, life, life is sometimes really cruel and really unfair. And it's understandable that say, if you go through the menopause and you get to have your babies, your children, if that's taken away from you, um, inevitably anger, sadness, grief, it's all comes up to the surface and our society doesn't always create space for that. And I know that going through my cancer experience, my physical health was really well looked after by my team. And I would say now in hindsight that my emotional health, my spiritual health was completely neglected. I was never referred for counseling, any kind of therapy. I mean, in hindsight, I should have sought it out myself, but I don't think it was even on my radar. I was just head down, survival mode, you know, taking it day by day. And yeah, psychedelics, well, at least for me, and I know for many of the participants um, on the clinical trials and on the retreats that I also now facilitate on, it's often just getting in contact with what's been suppressed, what hasn't been processed and expressed. And whether that's, yeah, just kind of reconnecting with it, but not only on a kind of intellectual level, but also really in the body, like, the psychedelics really help you to reconnect with your body and where you're holding on to that grief, that sadness, that shame, whatever it is. And um, yeah, just, just allowing it to be processed, to be felt and processed. So I think they, they work on so many levels. So you finished a retreat in the Netherlands. You pack your bag, you get back on to a flight to the UK. I mean, it's still a long journey. <laughs> to now being a clinical trial doctor at Imperial College, which is one of the main research centers in the UK uh, and one of the very few worldwide who offer this sort of therapy. And I know you run trials and do a lot of research, bridge the gap between you coming back home thinking, I've had this amazing experience. I am a doctor. Dare I say not many doctors would then have to go and make this <laughs> their sort of daily task in helping others. What was going on there? So it was really interesting because when I'd gone through my cancer journey, I, I'd i already realized that conventional medicine wasn't really for me. I was struggling with the system. Um, I was feeling really burnt out even as a junior doctor before I had cancer. And I think you just have that whole kind of life reframe, don't you? Like what's important, what brings you alive? And I was really aware that working in medicine wasn't wasn't good for me really. So it, I had no intention of going back to medicine after my cancer journey. And yeah, I when I came across psychedelics and I went off on this retreat, I was very aware that in order to, to kind of complete my mission, to, to kind of really bring this therapy um, to other people with cancer, um, or just other people in general, you know, anyone who's struggling. So many of us struggle with traumas and, and difficulties in life and um, that I was going to have to re-enter the, the kind of medical system because my sense was that the government weren't going to suddenly approve, you know, decriminalize and approve this, like in the Netherlands, that we could just start running psilocybin retreats. It was probably going to come in through uh, the clinical system. So very much through psychiatry. So I went back and um, started my psychiatry training and 
alongside that, I started training in psychedelic therapy and really just researching as much as I could. I was really interested to find out that there had already been so many um, trials done with psilocybin therapy for people with cancer facing existential anxiety. It wasn't just that Johns Hopkins one that had been done in 2016. It was There was so much already there across the world, whether it was in Switzerland or America. And um, so yeah, I just started playing a very long game, really. This is, I thought I'll go into psychiatry, I'll become a consultant psychiatrist and then hopefully train as a therapist and then I'll be able to somehow by then maybe the government will have changed the legislation and fortunately I crossed paths with David Nutt who is the head of um, Imperial the Centre for Psychedelic Research and a few other colleagues as well who, who are really interested in psychedelic therapy and interviewed for a job at Imperial after a few years working in psychiatry and fortunately got it. And I've now been there for nearly two years. And yeah, it's just been such an incredible experience to be able to legally work with these medicines um, and, and to just see the impact they're having on people. I've, I've just finished working on the psilocybin therapy for anorexia nervosa trial, and our results will be out soon. And I'm also currently working on a fibromyalgia trial, so with psilocybin therapy. Um, we've also got, had DMT trials running as well, which is another type of psychedelic um, DMT for treatment resistant depression. So there's lots going on, even just the Imperial and then, you know, worldwide, there's so many centers now researching psychedelics for a range of conditions. And it's not just um, mental health conditions, but also things like Alzheimer's. And there's actually more of a push now for researching women's health you know could could psychedelics help with when people are going through the menopause you know instead of hrt or alongside hrt um what else could it help with could it help with fertility you know there's there's so much to explore so it, it's really exciting and what i think is most exciting this is such a tiny part of what maybe the nhs or other sort of hospitals and big trusts do right like i think the the average person doesn't even know what you do is legal, uh, is being run through research centers like yours. And then when you are the patient and you're reading information leaflets by big charities, by breast cancer foundations, by, you know, well-meaning, maybe surgeons or oncologists, and they talk about complementary therapies in three sentences saying there might not be much evidence, but maybe acupuncture. You know, it's so diminished and it's so underplayed when you then enter a really thoughtful understanding conversation with someone like you and your colleagues you realize that there are so many worlds out there of different healing modalities that we have plenty of science for plenty of evidence there are extensive trials happening and they've already happened and we've just got to go and look because for the right person this can be life-changing can't it yeah, and it's it's really hard. It's it's incredibly frustrating as a researcher and therapy guide on the inside. He's what we're witnessing. You know, it's such an honor and such a privilege to be doing this work, and we get to witness these huge transformations and these huge healing journeys. And of course, not you know, it doesn't work for everybody. Not everybody is is cured or fully healed, but for many people, it really helps. And it's such a shame that it isn't available, um, you know, especially because we know that the, they're relatively safe. You know, when you compare it to alcohol, which is legal and 
causes such harm for people, you know, physically, emotionally, financially. And um, yeah, you've got psilocybin mushrooms which grow naturally in the ground. This is what's so ridiculous. Uh, they're natural. Um, they're freely available at the right time of year. And and yet they're illegal. And they're, like you said, the research is there. And of course, we do need more research. We need to make sure that we know exactly who shouldn't be taking them because they're not for everybody. And it's helpful to know, you know, what, what are the ideal conditions, the set and setting, how can we really optimize it so that, that people do achieve kind of what they, what they need in their healing journey. And I think it's, it's actually, we're in a bit of a difficult place in, in the kind of the boom of psychedelic medicine, because there has been a lot of hype and um, there's been a lot on the media, you know, Netflix documentaries on it. So a lot more people are talking about it and yet it's not accessible and, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean people need to go away abroad to various different retreat centers? There's also that question of, you know, how do you decide what's a reputable, safe retreat center as well? And um, it's expensive, you know, especially with people with cancer. Is The last thing you probably want to be having to do is leave your family, go on a flight, all these things, spend a lot of money. Also, a lot of the retreat centers will not let people with cancer kind of onto them because they're just concerned and they don't know really enough about the interaction. Whereas if you're doing it in a clinical setting, it wouldn't be so much of an issue. So yeah, it's just, it's really kind of raising um, a lot of questions about accessibility, affordability, and there just seems to be a huge gap at the moment between the research and what we do know and actually, well, the legal status, but also that the infrastructure, like, I really feel that it's not going to be too long before we see psychedelic medicine um, available. It's already happening in the States and various uh, yeah, different states there in Canada. Um, in Australia, they've just legalized psilocybin therapy for treatment resistant depression and MDMA therapy for PTSD. So, you know, it's happening. And at the same time, um, I just don't think the infrastructure's there that we've got a long way to go in lots of ways, which is which really hard because you, you can just see, you just want to give it to people now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why do I have to do more research? But like you said earlier, you went in it for the long game. You've done all your training, all of your further education to now being able to help people in the clinical setting. For your own personal story, was that it, that one trip to the Netherlands? So how did you then become to host and facilitate retreats like that is this a continuous say topping up like um you would go for more medication as such or is are these one-time one-off experiences uh, so again I can only really speak for myself but I had such a profound journey profound psychedelic experience that first trip to the Netherlands um that I I said there and then I don't think I ever need to do this again you know I, I this is woven into my being I'm never gonna forget that experience and yeah just sitting to you now I can really bring it to life in my mind like I can see those those um people who I've met on the chemotherapy unit I can feel them I can feel that love and so it really lives on it's in lots of ways it's not something that you need to keep repeating um, and at the same time, some people on the retreat, some people in the clinical trials, you know, they'll they'll say, I felt a lot better up for six months. Um, and yet then six months later, say their depression 
comes back. So I really think it depends on the person. It depends on the the condition that they're they're treating. Um, so it's it's hard to say really how often people will need it. But it's definitely not like an antidepressant, say, which obviously people take every day and they rely on to feel good. It's very much um, an experience. And and it can have such profound shifts that potentially you never need to take psychedelics again. And how do we guide people into their next steps? If anyone is thinking, I want to know more about it, where can we send people? What can be their first sort of dot to connect them to further learning? Well, there's certainly a lot of books nowadays. Um, the one that people talk most about is Michael Pollan's um, yeah, book that came out, I think, in 2018 now. But he's also got a Netflix series called How to Change Your Mind. Same, same name as the book. And Fantastic Fungi has a segment on psilocybin and um, specifically, actually, with cancer patients as well. Um, and there's just so much in the media now. But I would just say, be careful, you know, there is a lot of hype out there and it really isn't going to be for everybody. Um, and yeah, at the same time, just just really stay stay curious, stay open to it. And if you yourself do do kind of feel called to go to a retreat, um, just really make sure you do your research about kind of who are the facilitators and how long are you there? Make sure that you there's time for preparation and integration. And yeah, just really make sure that you're, you're ready to, to do this because it's not something you... And to take light, lightly, and there are, there are, of course, risks for some people. Thank you for letting us in to your journey. I always feel when people go off and do things that are really, really far off the mainstream, advice, guidance, you know, the guidelines, it's much harder to talk about them openly, isn't it? Because we're often worried that people might judge us, especially um, as a doctor. And um, so thank you for really being so open, I really believe that a path that is different can be so wonderful and we just have to go and find it. And I feel that if we just stick to mainstream advice and whatever the maybe, I don't know, nice guidelines tell us we can or can't do, we're really missing out because there is so much out there that can be explored and so much that can be amazing, but it's probably outside of many of those general boundaries and guidances for the you know average person and so it takes a lot of bravery to embark on a journey like that to talk about it and you're definitely one of those super brave people i i honestly thank you danny but i honestly feel that because i had such a profound life-changing experience that there wasn't really an option not to follow this and i just i just really believe in in these medicines and and the possibility for, for healing for people. And, and like I said earlier, because so often people aren't supported emotionally and spiritually when we go through these huge life challenges, um, that that really needs to be addressed in our, in our healthcare system because we know that emotional health, spiritual health has a huge impact on the body and vice versa. And it just feels that it needs to be holistic. It needs to be more integrated. Um, and I really believe as well, it will not be long before we are seeing nice guidelines with psychedelic medicine in them. We're just a bit ahead of the curve at the moment. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a really interesting few years to see what happens next. Let's have the conversation again when there is a shift. And in the meantime, I'll also link to Imperial College and to your work there and the trial so people can look that up um, for anyone who's maybe a bit more dubious. 
<laughs> of what happens within our amazing NHS. Thank you, Lauren. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Now, what an incredible woman, what an incredible story and how many super interesting things I have learned on the podcast today. Now, before we go, click the follow button on your podcast player. Thank you very much. It'll help others uh, find the show. I hope you've got your running trainers. And if you've heard me talk about our exciting new challenge, then please go to menopauseandcancer.org. You will find a link to our walking challenge. So many of us are walking already. It'll take you to a whole page where you can learn everything about the distances, the goals, how to train. We've got a Facebook group for you where you can join and you'll get loads of tips and tricks of where to start, how to train. And I am so excited. I've got my running trainers on as we speak, actually, because I'm planning after every time I've recorded a podcast episode to go out there and walk, 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 really digest, let the guest and the talk and the conversation sink into my system and kind of like just walk it off. Anyway, I am going to share more, but for now, go to menopauseandcancer.org and you can find all of the latest information about our walking challenge there. I'll chat to you next week. I hope you enjoyed today's episode.